Good morning. It's good to see everyone. Hope you're doing well. Today we're in our third part of our series, Blink Ever After. The past couple of weeks we looked at singleness, we looked at foundations for a godly marriage, and today I want to speak to you on failure. That's exciting. What an exciting thing to talk about. Now I'm going to preach a, a message today entitled, This Isn't the End, Is It? I believe as humans we face many fears, and I feel like two of those biggest fears are the fear of rejection and the fear of failure. I might be alone, but I don't think I am, that we all have experienced rejection. We've all faced failures. It's part of what it means to be human. And I believe that, that these needs are, are really birthed out, or these fears are birthed out of our need to be accepted and to be told that we're worthy. These are deeply connected in what it means to be human. And what I've found is that these needs and these fears are really, really connected with my relationship with God. And so we'll begin to unpack that more as we go forward. As we grow older, we learn to cope a little better with rejection, with failure. But the truth of the matter is that it hurts. And inside of us is is this animal, this monster, this beast that's ready to get out and it has to be tamed. It's this emotional beast. And when it's not tamed and when that rejection happens, it bottles up and then it wants to get out and claw somebody's eyes out because it hurts so bad. I mean, my fear of failure was so large when I was a kid that I would rather avoid playing the game than actually playing it in fear that I might lose. You may say that's a little prideful and you'd be exactly right. <clears throat> but really, this got so bad when I was in high school, there was this really nerdy kind of modern, futuristic, kind of space-age battle game called Halo that came out. It was right when Halo came out. They've got like Halo 35 now, but the, uh, this was the first Halo. Um, and, and I remember just hanging around. I went over to some guys after it had just come out a couple of weeks, and they had obviously been playing solid since it came out, like just had not stopped playing. And this is my first time even watching it. And I'm like, hey, this is really cool. Um, you guys are really good at this. And it's like a, a, a battle game where you like fight each other. <clears throat> and I knew this was just going to leave me super exposed because I'd never played this game before. Like, do you want to play? And I kind of push it off. No, I'm good. No, I'm good because I know I'm going to get destroyed. And then, uh, and, and these are like some cool dudes I'm hanging around. And I, I, I want to impress them. And so anyway, I end up playing the game. And <clears throat> of course, I get destroyed because they play way too much of this game. And I've never played it before. They destroy me. And so I just push away from that point And I'm like, I just don't, I don't want to play. I'd rather watch. And it's this it's in this stupid kind of simple way about a game, but just imagine what that is like in such a way more intense environment in my life and in your life. I, this fear never really went away. In fact, when I was in college, um, I, I had an opportunity. There was Halo 2 had now come out, and I, I remember sitting at home for an ent almost an entire weekend and playing it by myself, not with anybody else, but by myself, and I wanted to beat this game, and I, and I beat the game in that weekend. Um, so, so, you know, I, I actually did get some downtime in my co college uh, years. That wasn't the only thing that I dealt with, but I dealt with the fear of rejection in a really large way. Like most <clears throat> young people, I was super image conscious, as many of us are and were, and uh, this was, it, it really drove my life in many ways as a, a young person. And I had uh, little girlfriends each, each year. I, I don't know why I call them little. I mean, I guess they were shorter. But um, uh, I had a, a little girlfriend every, every year. 
and uh, I'd kind of have one for like a month or three months, you know, whatever that would look like. But I would always break up with them. They would never break up with me. Uh, and, And it wasn't anything to do with them, but it was something really, really deep going on inside of me. I would always, I had this mentality that you're not gonna break up with me. Because emotionally, I couldn't handle that. I was so afraid of rejection and failure. I was so afraid that they would see my flaws that before you could break up with me, I had to break up with you first. So as things were going, probably even more as I was liking them more, I had to push them away in fear that as we got closer, they would reject me. I mean, it was so bad that I broke up with a girl on Valentine's Day. I mean, I know, I know that's disgusting. That's terrible. Like, what a terrible person breaking up with a girl in middle school on Valentine's Day. And I had bought her, like, some, like, a teddy bear or something, too. And so it was super awkward to, like, give her the teddy bear and then be like, yeah, so we're not going to be together anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm finished. And, and what's so f- crazy about that situation is that they felt rejected. They felt that they were being rejected, but at the core of all of it was my fear of rejection. So some, some of the times that the failure we feel, the rejection we feel, might be somebody else's issues that are being projected onto us, as it was with me there. The hard truth is that some of our worst fears come true sometimes. The failure we hoped would never happen does. The rejection we dealt with as a child comes roaring back in full-grown adulthood. And these failures, this rejection, happens way closer to home than what we'd like to ever imagine. But the good news is that the Bible is a love story. It's a love story from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation. It's God coming after us, pursuing us and wanting to redeem us. When we're pushing back and say we're not good enough, he's pursuing us and saying, I know, but I want you anyway. And we're going to look at a text today that really unpacks this and unveils this in a very beautiful and intense way. We've been talking about marriage, and we're talking about failure today. And, and the truth of the matter is that every marriage is going to have some baggage. Every marriage is going to have bumps in the road. And some of these bumps are speed bumps, and some of them are cliffs that we fall off, or mountains we've got to go around that might make us sick as we hit those mountain corners, but regardless, marriage is tough and real relationships face challenges. So I want us to dive into these scriptures to learn about working through these, to learn about working through difficult times in our relationships, and I pray that this falls on fertile soil today. Uh, The book of Hosea is where we're going to be turning, and it's the first of what's known as the minor prophets. And you say, what's up with the minor prophets? prophets, some are major, and it it really has nothing to do with content or their stature. It all has to do with the the content or how how much content is there. And for Hosea, there's only 14 chapters, as opposed to the major ones have like 60-something chapters. So these 14 chapters, while while it's a shorter book, it's a minor prophet, um, considered a minor prophet, it's not minor in its intensity and its imagery and its content. It's powerful, heavy, intense imagery and language about God pursuing his people. I mean, this is really unveiled in just the first few verses. Let's check out these first few verses, and we'll begin to dig in here. Verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, again, Hosea is a prophet. God's going to make his life very intense imagery here uh, about his relationship towards us. The Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. 
For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Like I know all the moms and dads are thinking the same thing um, and doing the same thing with your kids. Like, go find you a promiscuous one, bud. You know, that's exactly the advice you're giving your kids. No, we're not. Like, why God? Why would God say this? And, and you may be thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Like, who names their daughter Gomer, you know? Who, who is to blame for that? Oh, yeah, it's her dad. To blame is to blame. Mr. and Mrs. to blame is to blame. <clears throat> so I think we, we begin to look at this and we're like, God, what is up with this? And what's happening is Hosea is a prophet, a prophet that's going to speak for the Lord. But if he's going to speak for the Lord, God wants him so close to his heart and what he's gone through emotionally in his relationship with Israel that his life is going to become the imager. He's going to begin to live out some of these things that God has experienced. And the Lord's going to instruct him and teach him about his love and faithfulness all through this process and how to be a husband um, to an unfaithful wife. So the language is harsh. I mean, we're about to read the rest of this chapter, and it is harsh. We won't even get into some of the, the, the most harsh language about the judgment that Israel deserves. And though the language is harsh, the storyline is always tender. It's about a, a husband that's pursuing his wife, about a God that's pursuing an unfaithful people. And so, though, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where the language is harsh, but your love is, is genuine. We've had to be in those situations, and that's what we see from God here in, um, in full force. So let's continue reading. All of us are in different places today, um, but we're all in the same in needing God to pursue us despite our unfaithfulness. So let's pick up at verse 4 where we just left off. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, his first son. Call him Jezreel because I'll soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. His first child's name, Jezreel, actually means God sows. God sows. God was about to sow something into Hosea and Gomer's life to teach them about himself. Gomer conceived again, and she gave birth to a daughter this time. And then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Rohomah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. I told you the language is harsh. God just told them to name this daughter not loved. Like, how terrible if that was your name, like if you bore that name. Oh my gosh, it's intense language. But what I want us to begin to see here is that through this, there's really this theme that I see through this first chapter of pain, of perseverance, and of promise. And let's see here, because verse 7 picks up, yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. And after she had weaned uh, Lo-Ruhumah, uh, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Second, I mean, the first child, God sows. The second one, not loved. Third one, not my people. 
for you are not my people and I am not your God. Verse 10, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. I think there is this theme of pain, this emotional pain of an unfaithful spouse that's at play here. But there is this perseverance with the word yet that keeps showing up here. It it says there's some intense emotions and language in verse 6, yet I will save them. Intense emotions and language and name calling basically in verses 8 and 9, yet I'm going to cause them to prosper. They'll be like sand on the seashore. They'll grow. And then at the very end, verse 11, God begins to promise that the best is yet to come. So while there's pain, there's perseverance, the best is yet to come. So if you're in this place today, and I think this, is in, this chapter one is an overview of the entire book. If you're in this place today and, and you feel like a failure and you feel like you're going through some intense pain and you're having to persevere through some things, begin to see this. I will save them. I will cause them to prosper. The best is yet to come. Remember the yet is there and, and begin to continue to persevere. So before we, we get into the redemption that God desires, it's important for us to understand how we got here in the first place. How did we get here? How did we get to this place where we're fighting all the time, where we're arguing, where we're, we've been unfaithful to one another? How do we, how do we get here? We ought to go ahead and learn our mistakes. How did we get to this point before we figure out how to get out? How did we get here? Let's kind of do an assessment here. Well, I, I think the um, book of Hosea actually provides some things in different places that really speak into our lives on how we might have got here. Uh, first, I, I believe it's by taking, taking God or taking our spouse for granted. How did we get here? Taking each other for granted. Taking God for granted. Look at what chapter 13, verse 6 says. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. There's a real taking for granted. And that's such a, a, a terrible thought to, to think of taking one another for granted. We never want to do that, right? But how often do we do that with God? We take for granted his grace and him um, being our supply and provision. We take him for granted. And, and, it, and it builds pride is really what it is. And we think that we're doing this on our own. And we forget that, oh, there's another person in this world. There's another person in this room, in this bedroom. Verse 5, ch- uh, chapter 5, says, Israel's arrogance testifies against them. It actually says this a couple places. Their own arrogance testifies against them, thinking they're doing this on their own. So we can't take our spouse for granted. What this looks like is probably very familiar, is that the things that you did early on to woo her, to show, to show him your best side, the things that you did early on. I'm not just talking about being honest about who you are and what you're going through. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about actually being romantic and pursuing one another and being faithful to one another. We stop doing the things we did early on that got us to the place where we were so in love. We stop doing those things and begin to take each other for granted. And we can't take for granted what God's doing, what he's already done don't take for granted what your spouse has to offer either. 
The second thing I think that shows up of how we might have gotten this place of conflict, of, of, of failure, of unfaithfulness, the second thing that I think that we can find throughout the, uh, the text here is ignoring God, just like taking for granted. It's actually just plain ignoring them. Like it, it, It's even deeper, I think, than taking for granted. Ignoring God and or our spouse. Chap, uh, chapter four, 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. There's no love, no faithfulness, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's just this, like, he's not even there. We're just moving on with our life. We begin to operate as an individual. This may sound familiar in some of our, our, our marriages. He's doing his thing. I'm doing mine. We're just kind of cohabitating, doing our thing there. And what we're doing all along is ignoring. And most of all, are we ignoring God in our marriage? Are we ignoring God in our lives as a single person? Look at what verse 3 says. There's kind of results from ignoring God. Verse 3 in chapter 4. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. Your kids are probably wasting away. You're probably wasting away because you're ignoring one another. And most of all, you're ignoring the God that loves you and that brought you together. It begin, the land begins to dry up. No wonder marriages fall apart. Things get brittle and it's easily broken. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. Chapter 9, verse 16, Ephraim is blighted. The, their root is withered. They yield no fruit. Nothing good's coming out of this because we're ignoring God. We're ignoring the God that, that should be at the center of our marriage. So taking God for granted, taking each other for granted, ignoring God, ignoring our spouse, acting like we're just running on our own. The third thing of how we might have got here that we see through the book of Hosea, and there's many other reasons of why we got to this point, okay? So this isn't a giant counseling session on just how we got here, but these are the things we see in this text. Uh, serving other gods. They were serving Baal. They were serving another god. And, and look at uh, chapter 5, verse 13. They, uh, when Ephraim saw his sickness and drew to his sores, then Ephraim turned to Assyria and sent to the great king for help. But he's not able to cure you, not able to heal your sores. There's this searching, this pursuing of looking for love in all the wrong places. When we're hurting, we start trying to get, get healed somewhere else. When we're broken, when we're, things are drying up, instead of running to the Lord, instead of running to one another to talk about it, we start running to the other person at work. We start running to the bar, and we start looking for all, um, lo- looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for someone to heal us. And really, what we're doing is we're making idols of worship everywhere else, just like they did with with Baal. And it it, it really continues on until we get to the place of chapter five, verse fifteen. In their misery, they will earnestly seek me. Isn't it that, that what it's like in our, our lives sometimes? Until we're just completely miserable, then we're like, okay, God, I better seek you now because I can't do this on my own. Our arrogance testifies against us. Don't take God for granted. Don't take one another for granted. Quit ignoring God as the center of our marriage and serving other gods, looking to be healed in different places. Don't wait till you get to complete misery to seek him. So let's, let's continue to dig in because here's really, I want to share just something that's been a major thing in, in my mindset and understanding the gospel and early on in, in my walk with the Lord where I really didn't understand, didn't understand the gospel. 
And there were certain things in my life that I was trying to overcome that, I, I, you know, different sins or addictions or whatever I had in my life. And, and I was just trying to overcome these things. And, and, and you can probably relate to whatever that thorn in your flesh is. And, and I, I always pictured this ladder. I always pictured this ladder that I would climb up this ladder. And every time I made a mistake, man, I would just fall hard to the bottom. Emotionally, like I had guilt and shame that had just dropped me to the bottom, and the shame really kept me from climbing back up. The guilt wanted me to climb back. The guilt pushed me. The shame is what was keeping me back, that I was making my failure my identity. That's dangerous. So I would always picture myself climbing back up this ladder, and every time I'd make whatever, I don't know if there's a little mistake and a big mistake, but anytime I'd make just some mistake, I'd fall, just bam. I mean, I hit the ground. I handled that situation hard, and it hurt. Every time I was just slamming down. And what, I, what the Lord began to teach me is that I don't understand grace. Like, I don't understand the gospel. If I just see this as this legalistic game, this religious game that I'm climbing up, and every time I make a mistake, bam, to the bottom. Now, the reality of this situation is that sometimes the, um, is that when we fall, Jesus is there to catch us. And, and it's not this big legalistic ladder, but Jesus is there to catch us. And just put us back up on that ladder and, and give us confidence and saying, it's not about you, it's about me. It's not about your perfection because you don't have any. Your best day is like filthy rags. And so Jesus pushes us back up on that ladder and tells us to keep going. That visual changed my perspective. And the reality of, of the situation is that there's consequences to be paid for some of our actions, right? And, and the truth of the matter is that sometimes we do fall to the bottom of the ladder, you lose your job because you made a mistake. There's consequences in life, and we, some of those follow us our entire life. Other times, there's incredible grace and mercy, and it's, it's covered over, and God takes care of us and shows us favor in that way. But so, so sometimes the consequences, there still is a ladder sometimes. We've got to build trust back up with our spouse. We've got to build trust back up with our, with our boss, with our friends, uh, because we went off on that tear, whatever it might be. So this is really what I want to begin to dig into now is really just this path to redemption that we find that, that God, God's heart is really just unveiled. And while the language is intense, uh, there's this tender storyline. And I, I want to make sure that we get a picture of God's, space and, uh, God's face and God's heart towards us um, and towards our failure throughout the book of Hosea. I, I think it begins with his love towards us, chapter 3, very early on in this uh, prophetic work. Chapter 3, verse 1, uh, God tells Hosea, go show love to your wife again. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Love. Like that's the first response to unfaithfulness. Is, is A, there's a promise there that I'm going to be faithful. You don't have to doubt whether I'm going to be faithful. But he tells Hosea, go show love to your wife again. Go pursue her again. And you may just need to hear that. Uh, some husbands in the room, some wives in the room, you just need to go show love to your spouse again. Go show love to your spouse again. 
Because we can love because he first loved us. And if you're not receiving that for yourself from the Lord, which you probably need to, if you're not showing that to someone else, that means you're probably not receiving it from the Lord. So make sure you're just open to receiving that from the Lord as the Lord um, is giving that to us. We can be a conduit for uh, uh, his mercy to them, which is really the second thing that, we, that shows up is, is God's heart for us as love. And, and the second thing we see in, in chapter six, verse six, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, not ignoring, but acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You know, anytime you mess up, I, I know sometimes I, I'll say something mean to my wife, and, and um, I'm not real mean, but every once in a while something comes out, and um, I'll say something that, man, I just regret. I, I regret the way I spoke to her, and and man, I, I just, I was wrong. I know I was wrong. And instead of going back and just being like, babe, I'm sorry. Like, would you forgive me? Instead of doing that, I'll just go like clean the kitchen. I'll try to go like work off my sins. I'll try to go work off the things. And, and, and what God's saying here is, look, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Not that sacrifice is a bad thing. There's all kinds of things in the scripture about kind of good sacrifice. But he's like, if, if you're not offering mercy, and the sacrifice isn't going to do you any good. you got to get down to the heart of the matter. And I th- I've found that mercy is a lot easier to extend once we realize how much we need it. And pride plays into this. It plays into this in, in a great way. Once we begin to understand that we need that mercy, it's so much easier to offer it. Once we understand that we're only here by the grace of God, then it's so much easier to extend that. So we see love, we see mercy as God's heart towards our failure. Man, this is one of the ones that just rings home with me in chapter 7, verse 13, at the end of the, the verse here. It's longing. God says this about Israel. He says this to us today. I long to redeem them. Redemption was a big thing in, in these times. This word is very powerful, and I won't go into all the the depth of it, but from the beginning to the end, it's about God redeeming mankind. It's about God longing to be in communion and saying, hey, trust me, I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people, just as uh, Hosea was to go out and marry, marry a promiscuous one, so God did with us, and he pursued us, and he longs to redeem us, and we have an incredible opportunity in one another's lives to point each other to God who is the Redeemer and to get this real picture of his face that he longs to redeem us. That picture of the ladder that I I expressed a moment ago, it was, I I felt like it wasn't necessarily God that was throwing me down, but I, I did get this picture of him bringing me up and I got this real picture that God longed to redeem me. He longed to make me holy. He longed to be with me. It really began to change my view. God's heart towards our failure is love, mercy, longing. And, and then lastly, in, in uh, chapter 11, compassion. 11 verse 4, I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one um, who lifts a little child to the cheek. And I bent down to feed them. Verse 8, all my compassion is aroused. When we think that he's got his fist raised, ready to strike us down with his lightning bolt, he wants us to get a different picture of how he pursues and how he views our failure. I led them with cords of human 
kindness, with ties of love. It's just beautiful kind of imagery. And then I, I was like the one who lifts the cheek of a child. That's kind of how I feel with my guilt and my shame sometimes. When I'm down at the bottom, when I feel like, oh man, I really messed it up. And, and, and he was like the one who lifts the cheek. And everything in him, all the compassion was aroused. And he just wanted us to know. We have these moments in our day and in our week where compassion is aroused and when anger is aroused. And I think really, as a, a spouse, uh, of when they make a mistake, having this, this same attitude as God has towards us to be one that leads them with ties of love, one that will bend down and lift their cheek when they're looking down on themselves. We lift the chin next to the cheek and bend down to feed them and build them up and encourage them and something inside of us would grow up and that compassion would come out. Not of our own, but out of the compassion that God gives us. So it's very important that we see God's God's heart towards our failure. And then finally in chapter 14. So where do we go from all this? Where do we go from this, this, this uh, perspective, this new perspective of God's view towards us and our failure? Well, it's our response towards his heart for us. Like, so how do we respond to that? How, how do we respond to that? I think um, uh, chapter 14 is, is so, so powerful um, and I want to uh, dive in with us today. And, and before we do, I just want you to begin to, um, you know, search your heart and open your heart for what God's wanting to speak with you today because there's something deep here. And I believe it's about repentance and forgiveness is what we see in Hosea chapter 14. And so I want you to turn there uh, with me. Hosea chapter 14. And let's, let's read the uh, m- most of it here. Begins verse 1, return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. The first place verse 1 tells us is to return to the Lord, is to repent, to honestly confess. This is something that's so lost in our generation is to constantly confess and repent of our sin. Uh, so that's how we begin to take God for granted is, and, and begin to take Jesus catching us for granted and, and then we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand grace and, and, and we don't have faith in that grace because we don't really understand it. If we're not really understanding that, our sins have been our downfall. And, and it's a matter of confess, confessing that, asking for forgiveness. Verse two, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Continue on verse three. Assyria cannot save us. Uh, We will not mount war horses. We will never say again, our gods, um, to what our own hands have uh, made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. So there's this repentance, this forgiveness that comes about. And I believe um, verse four begins to speak of a healing, a revelation, and a redemption that must happen Verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Is that how you're viewing God? Are you allowing him to heal your waywardness? When we, when we stray from the Lord, another translation will put this as backsliding, waywardness, when we drift our eyes from the Lord, we begin to be unfaithful, to serve other gods, to ignore him, to take him for granted how we got to this place. 
He says in chapter 14, verse 4, I will heal their waywardness. That there's actually work that needs to be done in our heart. And it needs healing. Those feelings of failure, those feelings of guilt, um, that, uh, that shame that we're living with that needs to be healed. And God wants to speak in to that. And those things, uh, uh, guilt can be a, a good thing. It, it, it's conviction happening in our heart, but God wants to heal that identity of shame. Look at vi- verse 5, and this is, I'm just going to keep reading. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the, the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper tree. For fruitfulness comes from me. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who's discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but they're rebellious. Stand in them. I think we have to begin to ask ourselves something. Are, are we ready for repentance? Are we ready to return to the Lord? Are we ready for him to heal our waywardness? Are we ready to offer that to others? We have to, just in closing today, as we can all stand, I want to point out two scriptures that ask us basically today. What are you sowing? What are you sowing into your relationships? What are you sowing into um, your relationship with God? Chapter 8, verse 7. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. We're not sowing in anything. We're just sowing in the wind. And it's no wonder we have no results in our life. Chapter 10. Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. I love that. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up the unplowed ground. Some of us, our hearts are hard in this place and we need the Lord to come and help us break up this unplowed ground, the things that we haven't been sowing righteousness, we've been sowing into the wind. Uh, We haven't really had a clear picture of who God is towards us and And God wants us to return to him today. He wants us to come home despite your failures, despite your conflict, and put him at the center. Quit ignoring him. Quit taking him for granted and come home. Confess your sins. Come home. Because God, this picture of love and mercy and compassion and longing to redeem us is the God that we serve today. And Hosea is a beautiful portrait of that. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're ever present with us, God, and you're all we need today, God. And I just pray that every heart in this room would have a clear picture of your grace and your mercy towards us, God. Every heart, uh, it would be revealed in their hearts, God, of, of your goodness towards them. And I pray that something would be sealed God, as we break up the unplowed ground, as we begin to reap uh, unfailing love, God, from you, that we can freely offer that. We can love each other freely, God, husband and wife, and we can love you freely, God. And I just pray that you would continually draw us in, bring us to a place of repentance and healing of our waywardness, God. And we trust you. We thank you for your unfailing love that's sought after us. In Christ's name.